you guys probably noticed a amazing, handsome young man, not me, but <laughs> dancing and running, <laughs> Clyde, <laughs> dancing and bouncing like a pogo tigger kind of guy. Well, that's, that's Jay. Jay is a huge part of this body. He went through a really rough season. If you know any of Jay's testimony, he lived in a very dark place for a very long time. And God radically redeemed his life. And he's... You know, some people look at that and go, what? What? what what's that? What's their dance? What's, what's going on? Flat? What's... Read the word. David danced unashamedly before God. He danced in his underwear. I don't, I don't suggest that. Jay, keep your, keep your pants on. I'm just saying. Jay called me and he has a word. And I said, can you do it in under two minutes? He said, oh, I think I can. So I want, I want you guys to hear Jay's heart. This guy's on fire. Let me, let me turn it on. Okay. Hello, family. Hello. Take a breath. Okay, Take I'm breath. just going to tell you guys, these last three weeks, I've hardly had any sleep. And I'm telling you, God is doing some big things. And he told me, I, I asked God, you know, God showed me, he goes, Jay, you know why? You were such depressed. And I was like, God, what? What's going on? He goes, this wasn't all your wife. He goes, you lost your lost some of your love for me. And that's, that's why I was... That's why I struggled so bad for two years, because I got myself in deep depression, and I thought it was all because of Nikki, my, or Nicole, my, my wife. And today I didn't actually dance for her because she was supposed to have been up there with me, but it didn't work out that way. But I did actually for her, but I also did. I'm just so thrilled what God's doing. And I, I got one more thing. Okay, last week, I'm going to make this super quick. I got like a uh, minute, 22 <laughs> seconds left. Okay. Um, that man Chance, I was telling you, got my friend Kelly. I called her this morning. I told her some of the things that God's been speaking to me about. And I said, how's Chance? She goes, oh, he's out of ICU. Okay. He's out of you? ICU. And I said, oh, good. I said, that's good. I said, um, I said, what's going on? She goes, she walked in there, and she said, he was talking about Jesus, and he was telling her, she was telling him how, you know, there's a church up here praying for him. And, you know, that uh, there's all kinds of people praying for her. And she was telling about this guy named Jay that, you know, and me, me and her, I've known her since she was like 14, 15 years old. And, um, and so uh, he asked her, how long? How long is it going to be? And so I did a prayer of, of a centurion for him. Me and her prayed. I says, you know, and I said, I told her, I was like, if this don't work, if he ain't walking out of the hospital here soon, I told Jesus, whatever, if I got to go down there, I said, I'll come down. I got some things I need to tell her any personally. But I said, we'll go down there. And, and anoint him up with some oil. We're going to get him up out of the hospital. Because I know Jesus wants to heal him. Okay, and i got one more thing to say. And I'm fully, <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm 99% sure this is coming from Jesus. But, I mean, I, there's always that percentage. I can't say, you know, I'm just a man. You know, I'm just, a, I'm the messenger from the Lord. He told me, okay, you know when you watch a TV program like the Gold Rush, and they go, oh, here's a preview. And there's a preview of it. They go, oh, you know, they show you a couple of things. You're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Because I did it with the, uh. The Curse of Oak Island thing, you know, saying, hey, you know, here's a little preview, or here's a preview of Gold Rush. I just want you guys to know, the warrior anointing is getting ready to bust Woo! out on us, all right? That's coming. So I just wanted to build you guys' faith up, because when it happens, it's going to be the double boom in your spirit. And I'm telling you, the warrior anointing is going to carry so many spiritual gifts. We're going to have almost every single 
spiritual gift available because we are at battle with the enemy. So I just wanted to tell you guys, I love you guys very much, and Jesus loves us so much. I love you guys. Praise Jesus. That's and here's good. our fearless pastor, Doug Thomas. I'm hooked on this guy. <laughs> oh, oh my. I got to get a hug. Ooh. I love you, Doug. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to have to change my message. Hey, we have had some really good moments in the past few weeks, haven't we? Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, uh, just uh, Mike, uh, I can't remember his last name now. He was here. He was amazing, Brother Mike, when he came and shared. And, th and then we had Dr. John Burpee. And then we had Matt Dalby. And, and it's just been some really awesome stuff. But one of the things that Dr. Burpee challenged a lot of us in was crossing the threshold. Remember that? That was a powerful moment. And, and I actually got to read all of the little posty notes that were posted, and they're powerful of what people were leaving behind, and they were stepping over the threshold. Some of you came up and were doing a jig on the threshold, stepping into a new place. And it reminded me of a story. Most of you probably know that I'm kind of a part-time treasure hunter. I love going after treasure. We do metal detectors. We go underwater. We go on land. We do research. I love that stuff. That's why I think I love people, is I love looking for the treasure and the gold in people. Well, years ago, we were up in the Dalles, and I was running a meat shop for a company up there, and one of the customers that shopped in there was a gentleman that across the river on the Washington side, owed, owned several thousand acres of land. And it's where the Whitman Mission was, where the Oregon Trail kind of came in, and at the Whitman Mission, you would cross the, the Columbia River into the Dalles, and there was a fort there called Fort Dalles. And this is in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, somewhere around there. Anyhow, he owned all this land, and I asked him one day, I said, can I, would you mind if I went on your property and did some metal detecting? And he stopped for a moment. He said, you're the first person that's asked me. I'm always running people off because they had all these old adobe buildings and really cool things up there. And he says, you're the first person that's ever asked me. What do you drive? I told him. He goes, I'm going to let my ranch hands know. That's you. Leave you alone. Just shut the gates. Didn't want all the cattle getting out, I guess. I don't know. But. So we had permission to cover 2,000 acres of history. And during that time, we were going into, uh, a friend and I, we were going to these old adobe houses that were built back into the side of the hill that had a facade front of wood. And you would step through a threshold to go into the buildings. Now, you had to watch for rattlesnakes. There was a lot of rattlesnakes over there. So you'd step in there, you'd throw some rocks in there, and you'd listen for a rattle or two. And if, you, if it was gold, you didn't hear nothing, you'd step in there and go. So we went inside. This, this place where there was a bunch of these houses all dilapidated built into the side of the hill. And anyhow, we're going through, and I take this one house or building or a little room. I remember stepping across the threshold, 
and I'm looking for a cache, C-A-C-H-E, not C-A-S-H, but a cache. People typically would hide things because they didn't trust the banks, they didn't know where to put it, so they would hide them. So a metal detector has basically two settings, ferrous and non-ferrous. Ferrous is anything that's iron. Non-ferrous is anything that's not iron. So you can discriminate the metal out and finally get into what is non-ferrous, which is things like silver, gold, lead, you know, all of those things that do not contain iron. Unfortunately, old beer cans and things like that too. But that was never an issue over there because it was so old. So anyhow, I'm going around this. I stepped through the threshold and I turned around. I went all through the walls, every bricks, everything, nothing. And I go over the threshold and this thing beeps off. Now I'm in ferrous mode, so anything metallic would beep. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Maybe it's a square nail, a lot of square nails. I think, well, that was interesting. So I go again, and this time I discriminate all the iron out and go to nothing but non-ferrous, meaning gold, lead, silver, in that context. So I go around, bleep, it goes off again. And of course, about that time, I'm thinking, I have hit the mother load. <laughs> so I reach up with my hook and very gently pry this board back, and I see this gold thing come fluttering down, just flashing light, hitting it and it's going clear to the ground, tink, 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 and disappears. So I go under some boards, and I find it, and I grab it, and I thought I had found a huge gold dollar, or a $20 gold thing. I mean, it was giant. Well, it turns to find out it was actually a medallion that somebody had put over the door, and it's a horseshoe. But I showed it to an old friend of mine who was an historian, and he traced it back, and it turned out that this came from the post the Dow's fort, it was military dress halter stuff they would put on the halters. So there's a lot of history and a lot of significance to this. But my whole point in this, guys, is that if I had not crossed the threshold, and if I had not, once I crossed the threshold, continued to still move about and to look and to search, I would have never found that. And many of us, and I've said it time and time again, we are one step away from something incredibly great that God has for us. That's why a few weeks ago, I ditched this sermon I want to share today. I ditched it for the lepers in 2 Kings chapter 7. You guys know the story. Everything was in chaos. Everybody was dying. There was no food. And it said these lepers who were the least of the least and the lowest form of life on their food chain as they knew it are outside the city starving themselves. And they're like, hey, we're... They're not going to let us in there. There's no food anyhow. Let's go out to the enemy's camp. So in other words, they crossed the threshold. The word says they got up, they arose, and they walked out into the enemy's camp. And God had already cleaned it up. And they saved a city. So man, don't be afraid to step over your threshold. And once you do, don't just stop. Just don't step across and say, okay, now what? When you look at some of the big hitters in the Bible, there were years between the time that they were promised something and the time that it actually happened. Matt alluded to that last week. Many, many years. So if that's you, if you've stepped over the threshold and you're waiting and it's been a lot of years, you're in good company because there's a lot of people in the Word of God who were promised something and had to wait. If you're with those people, you are in good company because their promises came. Amen? Well, I want to move on with where I was at. That was kind of a sidebar freebie this morning. So 
I wanted to press on into something I started sharing a few weeks ago, and I was talking about if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, there should be some notable qualities that we walk in and we walk with, right? We should be known as those who follow Jesus. So what marks us as those who follow Jesus? One of the first notable traits we covered was in Matthew 4.18, where Jesus simply comes up to these men, the Sea of Galilee, and he says, come, follow me. And we read and we learned how they simply got up, they arose, they went, and they followed Jesus, and they abandoned everything and left everything behind to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we learned in the end of that that to follow Jesus means to live with radical abandonment for his glory. Amen? I've watched people who are on fire for God. They're not doing this all the time. They're on fire. They're, they're holding steady, a great altitude. They're not just falling in the pit and back up here. And they've learned how to maintain an altitude, wherever that's at. They've learned that. And I've watched them, and, and it's because they live with this abandonment for the king and his cause. Amen? And then I left you with this great assignment to read chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. How many actually did their homework? few of you. Okay, okay. Matthew chapter 10. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> I'm going to kind of breeze through this a little bit, and then we're going to focus on the last part of that chapter. But... It starts with Jesus. He calls his 12 disciples together. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here for time's sake. He calls his 12 together, and he says, look, I'm going to give you something. And he, the word says he gave them the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. In other words, he said, here is my mantle of authority. I'm laying it on you. Go do the stuff that I did. And you have the power, and you have the authority to do it. So he sends the 12 out. It names the 12. And then it says these, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Now, they're just a sidebar note. From verses like 1 through 15, some, there are a lot of people that feel that this was spoken just to the original 12 apostles. And it obviously reads like that. But I think that we can learn a lot from this, right? <coughs> so it says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And he says, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And then he goes on from 9 through 14, he basically tells them, don't take anything with you, you don't need any money in your wallet, you don't have to worry about what kind of credit cards you have in your pocket, you don't have to worry about how much change or coinage you have. He's simply making this point, I will supply all your needs. How many of you in your following of Jesus have, have, have had your needs met in a really met in a supernatural way? Many of us, yes. That's what he's talking about here. As you go and you do the stuff I've called you to do, I will take care of you and I will take care of your needs, okay? I remember years ago, there was a complaint in this ministry you were in about this old, ugly-looking Pinto. Remember the Pinto cars? classics love them the classics <clears throat> this one had like 300 some thousand miles on it for a pinto that's a jesus thing man at that many miles 
And here's this car, man. It was just fired up and smoke had come rolling out of it. <laughs> they drove that thing to Guatemala and all over the country. And people were complaining, we need something flashy and new and cool. So someone donated a newer car. That car was always broke. But the one that God had blessed with humble beginnings kept running. It's probably running today. It's probably a taxi in New York City. Or I mean, I don't know. Probably has 2 million miles on it. But I'm just saying, God supplies our needs. It may not be flashy in everything that we think we deserve, but come on. It'll be exactly what we need. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to take care of your needs. So about verse 15, he said, truly I tell it. Uh, well, let me just move on. Verse 16. He's warning them now that, hey, guys, I want to warn you about something. As you go out, as you put your foot and you cross the threshold, persecution, it's coming. It's going to happen. How many of you have been persecuted? Yeah, yeah, it comes. Let's go on. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors. On my account. Because you're following me, there is a price. I just added that for emphasis. Before governors, kings, and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At, the time, at that time, you will be given what to say. How many of you have had that moment? You move into a situation like, what in the world am I going to say? And God just puts these words in your mouth. I love that when we're spending time with people and they, they start asking us about ourselves, who we are, and we start to share our story. All of a sudden, these things come out of our mouth and we're like, whoa, well, where did that come from? I, I didn't know I'd even bag that in my memory somewhere. God brings that to the forefront of our mind and we speak that forth. So Jesus is saying, as you honor me, I'm going to honor you in everything that you're doing. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I love that. Then he goes on in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Oh, whoa. He goes on to say, you will be hated. That's a strong word. It's not like you won't be liked. You will be hated, he says, by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's a hard word. You will be hated. You will be flogged. You will be put down. You'll be spoken against. You'll be pushed back. But in the end, those who stand firm mm, will be standing with me in the end. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Then he gets, this gets interesting. He says, the student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is not enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. It is enough, excuse me, for teachers to be like their masters or their teachers and servants like their masters. Let's just stop and hover here for a moment. What is he saying? What is Matthew trying to convey to us? I, 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 think, I think with some teachers, we may reach this point where we have learned all that we can from them in the natural. Like you learn a skill. I, I actually went through an apprenticeship years ago, 
and I became a journeyman meat cutter. And once I did, they just basically said, you've learned everything that we can teach you here. Now, there was management skills and others, and they would shuffle you off to someone else who would help you learn a whole new skill set. How many understand that? Yeah, okay. So, in the process, we need to understand, though, that what Jesus is trying to convey here through Matthew is that this is not so with Jesus. We will never surpass Jesus as the teacher. And we must be satisfied knowing that with him, he remains unfathomed, this, this incredible unfathomed source of wisdom. And he continues to teach us if we continue to abide in his presence. Okay? And then the word goes on. It says in, in the second part of that scripture, it says, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? To be called Beelzebub was basically being called the prince of the devils. It was a very derogatory, ugly thing to say. But I think what's happening here is that we need to understand that the student needs to share and be satisfied in the fate of the teacher or the servant, the fate of the master. In other words, if, if following Jesus means owning the words that he speaks, did you catch that? Following Jesus is owning the words and letting them become a part of our lives. And in doing that, we'll be known as one of our followers, but we'll also share, we will also share in the hurt and the pain of being a follower of Jesus. If they're calling Jesus names, they're calling us names. If they're calling us names, they're calling our master names. And I'm okay with that because I know that he's bigger than that. It isn't all puffed up. What'd you call me? Let's go, let's go. No. He just says, I, I told you, this is part of following me. But keep following me because I have a different end for them that don't want to believe. Does that make sense? So he says, do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will be not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And then he says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. Now, Jesus is kind of shifting a little bit here, and he's teaching them really kind of in a backdoor kind of way about the fear of the Lord. And he's saying, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. So what God is speaking to us, we have a responsibility to articulate and to speak loud enough for others to hear. Amen? Do not be afraid. Now listen to this. You might even want to underline this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Wow. He says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. This really goes back to Proverbs 1, 7, where it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's that reverence and that awe of who God is, that he holds my heart. He holds my life in his hands. He is my king. He is my master. And what they say to him, I will take it because I know in the end, I will still be standing with him. I tell you guys, we're moving into a moment where we really need we really need to understand that God's got this. Do not fear those that can just kill your body, but fear the one who created you. And it's not like this shake in your boots, trembling. Oh God, oh God's gonna. No, it's a fear of. It, it's it's that fear that moves into this reverence and an awe and a deep respect and profound commitment to want to give all that you have to Him, because you understand 
that he is the one that holds your very breath in his hands. Amen? Then he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. God knows everything. And even when, even the very head, hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now this is where Jesus really begins to lean in. Take note here. From 32 on, he really leans into these boys and whoever is listening, okay? And I believe he's speaking directly to us as well. And that is, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. What? Let me finish. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Depart from me, I never knew you. But gee, I wore the Jesus shirt. No offense, Jay. I wore the Jesus shirt. I had, I had, I had a little Jesus on my dash with the bobblehead. this stuff comes from, but hey. (laughs) It's so sad. Years ago, I worked with this crew. It was an amazing crew, quite an eclectic group, but there was a guy in there. I found out later one of the meat wrappers got really torqued about something, and she slams this meat package down, and she says, and you want that guy to teach your kids Sunday school? I, I didn't even know he was a Christian. And come to find out, he taught Sunday school and all that. I'm not trying to throw rocks at him, but his witness at work was not. Nobody even knew he was a believer. But somehow he would leave there and change his shirt and his clothes, and he'd become that Christian. Don't be that person. If you're following Christ, you take it all. You take the ups and you take the downs. You take the spankings and you take the honor of being a follower of Jesus. It's all one big package. And if you try to pick and choose, you will lose. Then he says, do not, this is where it just blows my mind. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. What? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Then he says, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoa. Now, this is a side of Jesus we don't see a lot of. Anyone who loves their father more than me is not worthy of me. What a powerful, heavy thing to say. Anyone who loves their son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Ouch. Ooh. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Oh, my. Well, while that's soaking in for a moment, let's have a quick grammar lesson. (laughs) Let's, Let's shift gears for a moment. Just sit on that for a moment. Let it steep. How many know what an adjective is? I'm really kind of segueing into something here, I promise. An adjective is a word that describes uh, the, the, the traits or the qualities of a noun, which is a person, a place, or a thing. Good, good. You guys all get an A. So if you were to describe Jesus to someone, 
And you were to sit down and just begin to think about the personality traits, the character qualities, what kind of adjectives would you use to describe Jesus? Just shout them out. Shout some of them out. Magnificent. Love. Furious love. Woo, that's, that is, that's very descriptive. <coughs> Excuse me. I actually Googled this one because I thought, I wonder how many... There's something like 280 adjectives that describe Jesus. <clears throat> however, however, when you come to the end of Matthew 10, um, we get a very different portrait of Jesus. We don't see this, all of a sudden, this loving, kind, gentle, ferociously loving person. And, and, and not many people until reading to the end of chapter 10 uh, know this side of Jesus. And I know that some of them, some are, and some are aware of this side of Jesus, but they really don't want to use it in their sharing Jesus with others. Because it sounds really harsh, and it's, it sounds almost edgy, like, ooh, this is, what? Kind of almost sounds cruelish. We love to hear the stories and we're anxious to hear how Jesus loves his enemies, how he forgives sinners, how he touches the lepers, how he sets the captives free, how he feeds the hungry, how he just loves the whole world, right? <clears throat> but the Jesus that we see here in chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, <clears throat> this Jesus, quite frankly, is one that a lot of people don't want to talk about. You know, it would have been really easy and tempting to move over this and just kind of move on about <clears throat> some of the character traits of a follower of Christ. But we have to talk about this for a moment. In this part of the scripture, we find that Jesus is and can be very demanding. After all, he is a king. He's my king and he should be your king. He is the Lord of lords. I don't think anyone ever gave lip to a king that survived and lived out a healthy life. This is a side of Jesus that a lot of people either you're unfamiliar with or you just don't want to go there. <clears throat> but we must. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we need to understand who we're following and how this works. This is where Jesus is what, what you might term, uh, use the term, brutally straightforward. He holds nothing back in verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. What a shocking statement. Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. Why would he say such a thing? What is going on here? Well, I think, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to correct some false assumptions about how the Jewish people viewed the Messiah's mission. They believed that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from all of their Roman oppression. He was going to sit on David's throne. It would be all singing in the halls and happy dance from here on out. Now, there is a moment that Jesus will come at the end of days, and he will set everything straight, and he will reign as king forever and ever and ever. But this was not Jesus' primary mission when he first came. It was not. They get a lot of that from, they get a lot of this from Isaiah 9. It's something we hear all the time at Christmas, Isaiah 9, verses 4 through 7. 
For unto us a child is born, to unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. Mm. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, I think it's okay to say that there was an expiration date on every king that ever lived. There's none on Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. But that's for down the road. Remember, we live in this tension of the now and the not yet, right? We have kingdom work to do. But I think, I think as the Messiah is described here in Isaiah 9 as the Prince of Peace, I think what happened is the interpreters of the Hebrew scriptures, the way I get my heart around it, is they took it to mean that this Messiah would be the Prince of Peace here on earth right then at that moment. But that was not the mission of Jesus. And we get that from Romans Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ultimate goal of the gospel, you need to understand, and this is what Jesus is trying to convey, was and still is not harmony with the earth, not this all peace, let there be peace on earth. It wasn't that. It was so that we could be at peace with God. Do you understand that? Are you getting that? Jesus says again in verse 34, do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. Romans 5.1 again tells us that he did not come to make, he, he, that he did come not to make peace on earth. The reason he came was to make peace between God and humanity. It had nothing to do with the planet at that moment in time. It had to do with him reconciling us with the Father who wanted to live and see and experience us and us with him. And it's an amazing thing when you think about it. But I think it would be easy to assume that most all of us in this room agree that peace does not come easily. And, and right now, I believe there's wars being fought all over the world. We're seeing that happen. And I think it would be ignorant for us to think that those countries, those people in those countries, enjoy being at war. They don't. Peace is always preferable. Peace... I think is paramount to a lot of people. They want, how many of you want to live in peace? You want peace in your home. You want peace in our community. We want peace in our cities. We want peace. I think all of us can sign up for that one. But I'm telling you, peace is always preferable. But again, the reality is that when two sides strongly disagree on something, conflict is inevitable. That's just a fact of life. And the same goes for the gospel. The goal of the gospel, again, is not conflict with God or with each other. The goal of the gospel simply is to be at peace with God. That's the goal. The difficulty is that, is that the gospel is so penetrating. The message behind it pierces places in our heart and, and makes people just want to run when they start hearing it because it's just cutting at their very heart and their soul and their spirit. It's going deep, and they want to run the other way. It, it, it pierces, I wrote here, the consciousness of humanity and calls us to love God more than we love ourselves. And man, verse 39 says, whoever finds their life will lose it. Guys, following Jesus isn't about you. It's about you surrendering who you are to him. And in that, he turns this thing that was once lost into a beautiful creation. And then God begins to download in your heart 
the things that he instilled in there that he wants to bring out to make him famous, not you. So narcissists have a real hard time with this because they think everything's about them. And then the word of God comes and pierces their heart and they're like, ah! It's not about us, it's about him. Jesus is warning us that profound conflict should be expected between those who accept the gospel and those who reject it. You know, we do park ministry on Monday nights, and I'm telling you, it's, it's powerful, but you soon, you understand this concept when you're down there and you're sharing and loving on people. They'll take your water, they'll take kind words, but when you mention the J word, they start to wiggle. And, and there's a way that the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to do to share and to punch through that. And it comes through trust and time and loving these people. Now we have people down there. Dan and I were down there a couple weeks ago, and this kid walks up and he says, are you, guy, are you the guys that pray for people? I need, I need prayer. That was a powerful moment. We got to pray for them. We've had other people now that we've been loving on them long enough and just sharing Jesus to them in just kind and wonderful ways, being those adjectives towards others. And all of a sudden, they're like, can we pray for you? And they're like, yeah, I'd like you to pray for me. It takes time. It's a journey, but it's been awesome to see. But we need to understand that the gospel itself, the content of it, that's the sword. You know, I'm probably not telling any of you guys anything new today. But let me ask you this. When, when most of you go to work, what do you talk about the most with your coworkers? Now, some of you are in a context where you can actually talk about Jesus in the workplace. But some of you know and you've been there and you start talking about Jesus and man, they pound on you. Oh, you're just one of those Jesus freaks. They do. I remember years ago working at Albertsons as an apprentice meat cutter, we had, <clears throat> the, the boss was a Mormon. I mean, a devout Mormon. And then we had a Jehovah Witness, a Christadelphian, which is a spinoff of Jehovah Witnesses. We had someone there who was a real right-leaning Baptist, and then we had someone there who was Pentecostal, and I'm watching all of these people, and they'd start into these discussions about God, and I'll tell you what, it was like a ping-pong ball in there. Bing, 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 bing. Everybody had an opinion. It was nothing but conflict. Finally, finally, the boss had to say, time out. We cannot, we must not talk about religion in here anymore. Put the screws on it. But what's interesting is he'd come back. I'd work usually the night shift, and be boning, taking the meat away from the bones and stuff, and he'd come back in to help. And I said, Gary, you don't have to be, because I know I just want to talk to you about God. Because <laughs> I was on fire. I just started, God had just given me a prayer language, and then I was on fire for Jesus. And, and, but I wasn't going to take the bait and get into all this stuff with all these other people, because I didn't know any of their theology. Later, I went on to study a lot of how they felt and thought and dealt with what they did. And I had an understanding or a grid for where they were coming from. But in the process, I thought, I'm not even taking the bait. I'm not even going to get involved. I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm going to shine for him, do what I'm told to do. And God just said, get some really big ears, keep your mouth shut, and just do your job. So I did. And I remember Gary McFarlane, I'll never forget him. He came in and he's just like, you know, I've come to this conclusion, brother. Here's God the Father, here's you, here's me. We're just coming at it from different ways. And he left it at that. There was no beating up or, you know, we came to an understanding. But let me ask you this, let me move on. When, when, when your family gathers at Christmas, <clears throat> whoo, 
What do you talk about the most? Is it Jesus? Some of you do. But some of you know, I don't want to go there because Uncle Bob or Aunt Sally, they're going to blow a gasket on this one. I know, I know we'd go family camping at uh, Harris Beach. And my father-in-law and I have this other brother-in-law. They would get so loud about politics that the, that the park ranger would have to come and say, hey, hey, you guys put a lid on this? You know, it's, it's getting late and we can hear you clear down at the ocean. You know, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But man, they would just, ooh, veins popping out. <coughs> but why is it hard in some of those settings to talk about Jesus? Why is it hard to talk about the gospel? I think it's because these honest from the heart discussions about religious beliefs and how we feel and think about things inevitably causes conflict. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. You know, um, even with fellow Christians, fellow believers, even, even with other pastors, I know sometimes I watch this conflict arise when it comes to getting straight the message of Jesus and some of the theology. But we have to remember, the Corinthians fought, didn't they? The Philippi, or the Galatians fought, didn't they? And I'm sure there were other groups that fought in their own circles when it came to talking about the gospel. But nowhere in the scripture, hear me, nowhere in the scripture do we get a sense that we should run from this conflict either, okay? But here's the thing. The gospel is presented with conflict, and conflict is presented as being inevitable. Verse 36 says, a man's enemies will be. It doesn't say might be. It says will be members of his own household. So those of you following Jesus and you're trying to share with family and friends and you're wondering what the tension's about, Jesus said, hey, this is what it's about. There will be conflict. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But here's the deal. It doesn't, the conflict in the gospel doesn't give us permission to be obnoxious for the gospel's sake. And this is where I get a little torque sometimes with people. They just, I got this gift of being blunt and I'm going to tell them they're going to hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus. I'm telling you guys, that's not the way to do it. This, this does not give us, the gospel does not give us permission to pick fights with people who don't share our views. We can have discussions, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will show you how to navigate those waters, but in a way that you're not being obnoxious because they will shut you down in a heartbeat if you're being obnoxious. We're still required by God's word to be gentle and patient and loving and kind and gracious towards those who do not believe. That's tough. So the cause of the conflict should never be our personality. It should never be our manner of presentation. The only legitimate cause for conflict the Word of God tells us and Jesus is laying out is the content of the message. The gospel is a harsh message if you're an unbeliever, if it's challenging your heart and the way you think and saying, you know, God's asking you to. One guy I was talking to on the streets, he made that very comment. He said, so what you're saying is, is I have to, in repenting, I have to acknowledge I've been wrong. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much that's what it's saying. He said, I know I'm right. I, I said, have a nice day. I mean, what, where are you going to go? Now, I don't know what he ended up with, but at the end of the day, guys, <clears throat> I, I, I just really want to embrace the abrasive, the, the, the abrasive personality should never be the sword. Some people are just caustic, and, and they, they say they're believers and Christians, but they're so caustic, they're so abrasive. Don't be that person. The content of the word is the sword. What you're sharing is that sword, and if it penetrates their heart and causes them to go, oh, man, 
so lost. I want to be healed. Then you've done your thing, and the Holy Spirit will do its thing. So after warning, I'm wrapping up here pretty soon. After warning his disciples about the potential the gospel has for conflict, Jesus reminds them of their need for loyalty. And this is so huge, guys. Jesus tells them in verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now the scripture is very, very clear. Jesus is not calling us to dislike or disenfranchise ourselves from our children or our family and our friends. And I've seen people take this and it's ruined families. That's not what Jesus is saying. Scripture is very clear in the commands in terms of honoring our father and our mother, right? The scripture is very clear that we should love our spouses. Very clear on that. So what's Jesus getting at here? I think quite frankly what Jesus is saying is he wants us to prioritize him. He wants us to make him our first loyalty. And to emphasize this, he brings us some things very precious and very dear to us, that being family and even our own life. So those of us with aging parents, how many have aging, ailing parents? That they need help. And I've watched my wife's in this journey right now, helping her mom, and I watched her journey through with her doctor, her doctor, her uncle. And, and at the end of the day, I watch and I still see her devoting her life in a very deep way to making sure that their needs are met. But I'll tell you this, she doesn't put that first. She spends time with Jesus first. So she's getting it from the heavens. She's getting it from the Father. So she has something to give away. Amen? So this is what Jesus is saying. Simply, he's just saying, hey, put me first. Put me first in all things. I'll try to streamline this a little bit here. Is this making sense, guys? I hope it is. What Jesus is calling here, I'm gonna paraphrase here a little bit. What Jesus is calling us here to do, I believe, is he's asking us to put the same energy into your relationship with him that you do with the people you love the most. It's that simple. Put the same energy and care into your relationship with him as you do with the people you love the most. In fact, he calls for more. A true follower of Jesus puts Jesus first in all things. That is another mark of a follower of Jesus, someone who puts Jesus first. You know, Christians should be known already as hard workers. Christians should be known as good parents and, and committed spouses. But above all, I think Christians should be known as a people who are committed to Christ and committed to Him above all else. You know, there's this, right now we're in this epic moment of, are you an American? <clears throat> of course I'm an American. I'm born in America. But I'm first a Christian. Do you hear that? I'm first and foremost a Christian. And I live in America. And I'm going to do my best to do what God's called me to do in this country. But it's God first. Because that is the source of my power. That is the source of my strength. And I'm telling you, those of you that are pushing on the front in some of these areas that are tough and dealing with uh, governmental policies and procedures, so God bless you. Keep leaning into the King of Kings and he will give you everything you need to stand in that moment. He will give you the words to speak. He will give you the words to write. You know, and, and I want to finish out with this thought. And just in case those listening to Jesus' message still hadn't figured it out yet, he drives home one last point. And he says, who does not take up his cross? Who, he who 
does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life shall find it. For my sake, <clears throat> who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. There we go. What is Jesus saying here in closing this up? What does it mean to take up our cross? Now, I've heard over the years a lot of people have come to this point where they, they describe their cross as some kind of chronic illness or, or, or they describe their cross as a nagging boss or, or they describe their cross as a cranky whatever. Nah, that's, that's just a burden I have to bear in this life. I got to carry it. Just, ah. That's not what the word cross meant to the first century Christians and believers. It was not. The cross did not call to their minds this idea of long-term difficulties or troublesome burdens that they had to carry around because this is my cross to bear. No. No, even though Jesus had not revealed how he was going to die yet, the disciples knew the meaning of cross-bearing quite well because they had seen people carrying that big wooden beam up to the mountain to be crucified. They knew what that meant. To bear a cross was to shoulder a heavy wooden beam on one's way to execution. End of story. They understood that quite well. But this take up our cross doesn't mean that disciples of Jesus should go and get a cross and go get themselves killed. It's not what it means. Christianity does not teach us salvation by martyrdom. It does not. Okay, so let's understand. And I've seen people flog themselves and beat themselves and, and just, oh, this is my burn. And, and, and no, no. What Jesus, I believe, is calling here is for a loyalty so profound, so profound that one should be willing to make the most extreme sacrifice if necessary, if God calls us to do it. Now, some of us have different roads that we're going as we're moving ahead. We're moving ahead, and God has us on a little different path. And God's requiring more of some and, and not quite as much from others. But in the end of the day, he's going to require all. Amen? You know, if you ever get a chance to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, how many have ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? Oh, that will light your pants on fire. It records that 11 of, the first, uh, uh, 11 of the first apostles who remained after the resurrection of Jesus, 10 of them were executed for preaching the gospel. And then we read that at least, at least six of them were executed by crucifixion. <clears throat> but they lost their life. But what did they gain? Everything. You know, we are extremely blessed. We live in a country, at least for now, <coughs> that none of us are, have been really in danger of being crucified for Christ. Now, some of us, I know, have encountered some harsh stuff. But at the end of the day, we live in a great country. But yet, the Word of God still challenge us to make, challenges us to make sacrifices for the gospel. And making sacrifices of time and resources is never easy, is it? It's hard. And, and I, in fact, I think sacrificing can make us quite uncomfortable. In fact, sometimes sacrificing can put us in distress. You're driving somewhere. You get a phone call. Uh, now, I, I can't drive with one hand and phone, so I'm obviously not supposed to do that anyhow. But it'd be catastrophic for me, so I have to pull over. And I'm sometimes late because I've pulled over because God says, you need to talk to this person. They're on a ledge. You need to talk to them. So I pull over, and 
and, and talk to them. And I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing. There's those times it's so inconvenient and you stop and you go, you know what? I need to stop for a moment because this is the right thing to do. You know, but this is the life of a, of a follower of Christ, a disciple, is that we learn to stretch ourselves. We have to learn to become like Gumby, right? How many had a Gumby doll growing up? Not me, I would never have. No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> Man, you could bend him. I mean, you could do this or any of that stuff. I mean, crazy, Gumby, crazy. So let me wrap this up really fast. What I see happening here in Matthew 10 is a summons to sacrificial discipleship. It's not a sacrifice to a charity case. It's not. It's a sacrifice to God who came in human form and he made the ultimate sacrifice. He died for us so that we could be at peace with God. Amen? We could be at peace with God. And I think our motivation for following Jesus, this whole charity case thing always kind of blows my mind because over the years I've heard people say, yeah, I just thought I'd get involved with the church because they need me. Yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus because he needs the gift that I have. I got this incredible gift and, and he can't do this without me. And you just want to go, stop it. <coughs> I've seen God use some of the... Some of the I've seen God use some of the craziest, wonkiest things to get his point across. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants us to join him in an amazing journey. You know, he died for us because he loves us. And he wants our loyalty, not simply because we owe it to him. Christ desires our sacrifice, I believe, to have the same motivation as his, and that was love. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks a little, little bit longer today. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. May we, I wrote here, may we set our hearts today to follow Jesus no matter what the cost is. And may we resolve to follow him day after day because we love him. We're not convicted by him. We're not beat up by him. We love him. And that's why we follow him. So, Father... I just thank you. I thank you for this amazing group of people that have a heart and a passion and a desire to want to follow you. And Father, we just look forward with great expectation of what you're going to do in the near future as you're calling people to step across the threshold and become more of who you're calling them to be. Father, Father, we just read in your word that, 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 that a true follower of yours lives with radical abandonment. And today we talked about how a true follower of yours puts you first. So Father, I pray that we would learn how to uh, honestly go home and sit down for a moment and just reshuffle the deck, so to speak, and move things around so that you are our number one priority. And in that, God, you will give us everything we need to minister to the needs that are around us in even a more powerful way. And Father, we just thank you now. And I just want to say that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who wants a deeper relationship with him, I would like you to just to come up. You come up to me after the service, whatever you, works. I, I just love for you to come up. Also, if you need healing in your body, I pray that you would come up. There's people here who will pray for you. So if that's you, if you, if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to go deeper with Jesus, I want you to come forward. And if you are looking for healing in your body, come forward as well.
So, Father, we just thank you for this amazing day. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. And if you would help move a couple chairs, stack them, that would be awesome. We have school going. So, God bless you. Have a wonderful day.